Uh, back in January, uh, you know January is famous for people kind of uh, getting New Year's resolutions and those types of things. And so, you know, I thought it'd be a good time to start some healthier life habits. And so I decided I was going to maybe try and exercise a little more often. And so one morning I, I get up to exercise and uh, normally I would stretch before I, I do this, but I decided I don't really have a lot of time this morning. Let's skip the stretching. So I skip the stretching and I get into this uh, workout, whatever you want to call it. And about 10 minutes in, I'm doing some stuff and all of a sudden I hear crack and I go, man, that's gonna hurt pretty bad tomorrow. And sure enough, I go to bed, wake up in the morning, stiff, back, you know, hunched over, a doctor visit and all of those types of things to try and get it straightened out. But I, I learned something that morning that I want to talk about today. The first is this, never neglect the stretching. And number two, when you get in a hurry, you often get hurt. And I want to talk about those things this morning from the book of James. And James is this letter written in the New Testament. It's written by the brother of Jesus. And he's writing to a group of mostly probably Jewish Christians, but he's writing to them. Uh, this is written early on. This, was written before, this letter was written before we have the Gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are written. And it's written really to encourage these believers, these new believers, to have some real faith, right? James is not interested in intellectual faith that just says, hey, we believe in Jesus. James is interested in a faith that changes lives. He, he wants to see it worked out in your life and in my life and in the lives of his readers. And so he writes to them to challenge them that they've got to work this stuff out in their lives. That it needs to be evident in the way that they live. But he, he also doesn't shy from this fact. Listen, he, they live in a real world with real issues and with real problems, and they're going to face some things that they're going to have to go through. And James does not shy away from this. In fact, we're going to read a few passages before we get to our text this morning. But in James chapter 1, verse 2, James introduces himself in verse 1, uh, and then automatically goes into this idea. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So right from out, right out of the gate, James jumps right in. He doesn't pull any punches. He says, listen, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. So he, he opens the letter with this idea, and then he, he begins to, even as we get into the letter, he wraps it up with this idea. And I, I want to I begin reading in chapter 4, verse 13. I'm going to read kind of a chunk here just to set the context of our, our main passage this morning. But James, also in this letter, is not just concerned with the trials that we're going through, but he also is going back and forth in this uh, kind of comparing and dealing with the rich and the poor. And he, he's trying to uh, say, he's going to make this point several times, that we ought not to show favoritism to each other uh, based on uh, how we look or how much money we have or don't have or those types of things. He's going to say that is not what we do as people who follow Jesus. And so I want to begin reading here in chapter 4, verse 13. This is, he's addressing here the rich, and, and this kind of puts it in context. Uh, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to go into a town and spend a year there and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills and we live, we will do this or that. As it is, you boast in arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, 
sins. Verse 1, chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, and you have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. So what's James doing here? Well, one, he's getting on to these people for putting their hopes in money. He's getting on to them for uh, thinking that ultimately they're in control of their lives. So they're saying, we'll go, we're making plans, we're going to do what we want to do. And he's saying, you're not, like, you're, you're arrogant because you're really not the one in control of your life. Just because you think that you are doesn't mean that you are. Control is really this illusion. You're not, you're not the one in control. And he gets on for, to them for forgetting God that's ultimately the one in control. And then he takes them to task for this, is that apparently they have been unjust to their workers. They have mistreated the people that work for them. They have, they have done them wrong. They have oppressed them in some way. They have held back money from them. They have asked for more work than they probably should have. They have mistreated these people. And so the question becomes, what are these people who have been mistreated to do? How are they to react? How are they to respond to this? And this is the question that I want to deal with this morning for a few minutes. Because life has not been good to these poor people who are being oppressed and they're being mistreated and they're being, uh, being done wrong. What are they to do when life is not fair? To be more specific to us, what are we to do when life is not fair? Like life mistreats us and things happen to us and we don't understand. And how should we respond? And here's what James is going to say, and this is our text in chapter 5, beginning at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, and you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by the heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. I want us to look this morning at what God wants from us as we face life's difficulty. I want to start with this fact, and that is this. Life is difficult. I know there are certain groups within uh, Christianity that like to preach a gospel that says, come to Jesus and he will take away all of your problems. The only problem with that are two things. One, the Bible, and two, life experience. Neither of those will bear that truth out. Jesus does not come to take away all of our problems. Now, does Jesus make life better? Does he give us joy? Does he give us peace? Is he with us? Absolutely. But we cannot say that come to Jesus and he takes away and erases and makes life just like go running through the, the, the fields with the butterflies kind of following you for the rest of your life. Like that, that is not the picture we get. In fact, James is going to be very clear in chapter 1 and verse 2. We read it. We're going to face trials of various kinds. What that means is we're going to face trials of various kinds. 
He's, he's, he's straightforward. James doesn't pull any punches. Jesus himself is going to say in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 is going to tell us, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as if something strange were happening to you. Sometimes as Christians we go, why am I going through it? And Peter's going to say, don't be surprised when this comes upon you. Psalm, the psalmist is going to tell us in Psalm 34, many are the afflictions of the righteous. What that means is, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Like, this is going to be the Bible all the way through, is that you and I are going to face trouble in one form or another. Normally, I think these struggles come because one of four reasons. Number one, human free will. Sometimes we go through stuff because we did something stupid. Can I get an amen? amen. Right? Or because someone else did something stupid and it affected us. Right? We, are free, we have free will, and so we can do things and say things that we ought not to do and say, and that can get us in a heap of trouble. Anybody that has kids understands, right? Your kids can do things that get them in a heap of trouble, and they come to blame everybody else, and you say, no, 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 I'm sorry. You're, you're a wonderful individual, but like, that was your fault. Like, you did it. We're not blaming anybody else. This, you're, you're responsible for this. And sometimes uh, it is our own decisions and our own just, we're just being just stupid, and we get ourselves in trouble. Secondly, this, sometimes God is doing something. We don't like to talk about this, but sometimes God is doing something. You know, I have, I have two young kids, and I, I know this, that discipline is hard. It's hard as a parent. It's hard on the, uh, for a kid. And, you know, your kids will be like, it's not fair. Like, you're not being nice to me. And I'm like, sorry. Like, sorry. Like, my goal is not to be nice to you or have you like me. Like, if you do, that's great. But today, we're, you know, we're raising an adult here who's going to be responsible and contribute to society. So you're going to have to go, like, clean up whatever that is, not throw a tantrum, pick up whatever you just threw. You know, you're going to have to get it together. And so I, I've learned this, though, that discipline is painful, but the pain of discipline is nothing compared to what the pain that will happen if they do not discipline. Think, think about that. Discipline is painful, but it is a, I would call it like a controlled pain, right? Like it's a pain that's for your good and sent in a way to help you grow. If you don't get that, you will eventually experience something far more painful that is way worse that will ruin you. And I think sometimes what God is doing in our lives is painful and it hurts and we don't understand it and we don't know why. But God is like a good parent who disciplines their kids and he's molding you and making you and shaping you and, and helping you become what he wants you to be. And then lastly, not only is God doing something, sometimes it's our mistake, sometimes God's doing something. Thirdly, sometimes the demonic is doing something. I know we don't like to talk about it, but man, we live in a world where we have an enemy. Like there is a real devil who's out to destroy. And there are times in our life, not every time, now he gets blamed for a lot of stuff he did not do, Right? But there are times in life where the demonic is up to something and, and the devil was working overtime to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And that is at work. And we have to discern what's going on there. And then lastly, sometimes stuff happens just because we live in a sinful, fallen world. Like sin, we like to think of it as uh, things that we do that are bad, but it's not things that you do that are bad. The things you do that are bad are a result of sin in your life. Sin is really this. It's relational. You are not in right relationship to God. You are not in right relationship to others, and you are not in right relationship to yourself. 
And sin, then, that, then because those relationships are out of alignment, then you do dumb things. You do things you should not do. You do things that, 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 that hurt and bring pain and cause problems because you are not in right relationship with God. You are not in right relationship with others, and you are not in right relationship with yourself. And part of salvation, we like to think of salvation just as being made right with God, but another aspect of that, another step, is when you get made right with God, you start to become right with others, and you start to become right with yourself. And I think that we need to understand that we have, that because we live in a sinful, broken world in which everything is fractured and messed up, man, that things happen, and I don't have an answer other than, man, it, it shouldn't be this way, but th this is what we have. And so life can be tough, sickness and death and, and all of these things. We live in a fallen world, and we can feel it. I don't have to... I don't have to tell you, you can, deep down inside, you know something is off with the world around you. And something is wrong, and there is injustice. And again, we heard about abortion this morning, that, and, and that is wrong. And, these, and, and, and the, the things that we see in our world, you could turn on the news for five minutes and see that the world is broken. And so what is our response to the problems that we face? Well, as Christians, we should have several responses. First of all, uh, I take Jesus seriously when he tells us to pray, his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like part of the mission of the church is to proclaim the gospel and the gospel being proclaimed begins to work in those relationships. It starts to put people right with God and people right with one another and people right with themselves. And, th and that begins to work in the world. And I believe that it is our job to proclaim the gospel and to do everything we can to see God's kingdom come uh, in heaven, uh, on earth as it is in heaven. And I know there's this tension with that because while it is here, like there are things that God wants to do that aren't fully going to happen until the day that Jesus returns. But that doesn't change the fact that we're called to work now and to do everything we can to make a difference in the world around us. Like we are called to make a difference, to see God's kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In our individual lives, in our churches, in our government, in all of those places, we, we, we work to see his kingdom come, his will be done. But, but what else are we to do? James here gives us another response, because here's the truth. No matter how hard we work at it, the world is still broken. And it's not going to be made right until Jesus does return. So what's our response? James says here this, be patient. Be patient. Be patient. Three times in this short passage, he says this, be patient. In James 1, we're told the testing of our faith produces endurance, produces steadfastness. James goes on to tell us in James 1, if we let endurance work, if we let it do its thing, if we let it kind of marinate and do its job, that we will become uh, complete and we won't lack anything. We'll be perfect and complete. And perfect isn't this idea of you don't have make any moral uh, you know, screw-ups, what it means is you'll be whole. You'll, like there's no pieces missing. You will be, you'll be fully complete. You won't be lacking any pieces if you let endurance finish its work. I, I remember I used to play basketball as a kid in middle school, a little bit in high school, uh, and we used to have to go to practice, right? And we used to have to run these drills, and we would run up and down the court, and we'd do free throw drills and layups and all of these things. And uh, as a middle school kid, you know, 14 years old, 13, 14 years old, I could go play a basketball game or go to practice, and I could run for a couple hours and never, you know, I'm good, no problem, let's go. But a couple years ago, I went to camp with the youth, and they were playing basketball, and I got out there to play with them, and about 10 minutes in, I thought I was going to have an asthma attack, like, I'm not, I'm not lying. Why? Because I hadn't done what I needed to do for endurance to be there any longer. 
I, I, hadn't, I hadn't stretched. I hadn't pushed myself. I hadn't, I hadn't gone through anything in a while. I hadn't done that to myself in a while. And that, that going through that and doing that would prepare me for what, uh, for what I was doing. And so this is the point. We have to be patient and let God work in us. We have to be patient and let God work in us. We have to let Him push us a little bit. We have to let Him stretch us a little bit so that we can be the, the man, the woman that He wants us to be. But here's the problem. We don't like to endure. We don't like to wait. As Pentecostals especially, man, we love when God shows up and does a miracle. When He instantly does something. Our favorite passage is Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit falls. And we love to focus on this one word. And suddenly, right? We like suddenly stuff. We like the sudden miracle. But sometimes the miracle is in the process. Sometimes the miracle is in what God is doing slowly that we do not see. I'm not opposed to the suddenly things. I think God does them. And I give Him glory when He does. But I think I'm speaking to a group of people who love that side, but we fail to remember sometimes that the miracle is often in the process. That there is something God is doing with you as you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and He works, and He works. And over time, you end up over here, and you look back and go, how, how, did, that, how, how did that happen? How did, I, how did I get here? And it's because God was working that miracle through the process. Waiting does something to us we would not get otherwise. Patience does something inside of us we would not get otherwise. And I don't know what you're facing this morning, and I don't know what situation you're in, but can I just tell you, maybe God's doing something, maybe waiting on Him, maybe being patient, maybe not trying to fix it yourself, maybe not trying to jump in and do something about it yourself. Maybe you're right where God wants you, and maybe you wait right where He has you. We are tempted to try to step in and fix our problems, but James goes on to show us what patience looks like. What does patience mean? What does it look like? So he talks about this farmer, and he says this farmer goes out and he plants seed, and he tills the ground, and he does his work, and then he, he waits patiently. The rains come, and then one day he gets a harvest. The farmer cannot rush the process. If he rushes the process... He will mess up the harvest. He will not get what he needs. He has to wait. He has to be patient. He has to let... And, and listen, most of what happens is out of his control. Most of what happens is out of his control. He has no control over the rain. He has no control over the sunshine. He, he, most of what happens is out of his control. I know we got all these modern farming stuff, and we, like to, we have the illusion of control over things, but the people James was writing to, these farmers would have little control over what happens. They plant the seed... And come what may, they hopefully get a harvest. And, and listen, I, I believe that God is, wants us to be patient and to wait. Notice here the, the difference between the, the patient man and the grumbler. James tells us this. He says, brothers and sisters, be patient, but don't, don't grumble. Don't grumble. What happens when we get impatient? We want somebody to blame. Like, this is not going well, and I really just, I need somebody to... And so then some innocent party becomes our target, right? We've all done this. You can admit it, right? You come home from work or whatever, and you've just had a bad day, and you're like, your patience is shot. And then like your wife or your husband says hello, and you're just like, ah, and you're just like, you know, or you're going through something inside, and, and you don't know what's happening, and you're looking for somebody to blame, and so you come up with a way, like it's, it's that coworker. Like if they would just do this and not that. And then we get angry, and we start to grumble, and we start to complain, and what happens is James says, no, don't, don't do that. 
And why does he, he says, the, the judge is at the door. And you're going to be judged for your grumbling. Again, James doesn't pull any punches. He says, if you grumble, the judge is standing at the door. Like, you're going to be judged for your grumbling. Wait patiently. Wait patiently. Again, back to the, the idea of the, the farmer. If you try to rush it, you hurt things. Why? Because hur hurry leads to hurt. Hur hurry leads to hurt. I'm no green thumb, but uh, when I bought my house, I had two orange trees on my property. And so every year or so, uh, not every year, but, but most of the years that I've been there, they'll produce a nice little harvest. And I don't know anything about these trees, like, like nothing. Like, I'm the least green thumb person you probably ever meet, right? But I know, I know enough to know this. If you pull those oranges off of the tree too soon, they are not good. You gotta wait. If you, if you wait too long, they're not good. There's a timing to the thing. And I don't have any control over that timing. When they, they, they show fruit when they show fruit, and it's ready when it's ready. And we have to remember, don't go pulling off what God is wanting you to wait on. Because when you hurry, it often leads to hurt. And you end up with things not as good as what God wants. And you know what happens if I pull, those, if I pull all the oranges off too early? I, I lose all of my oranges and I have to wait a whole other year for all that to come around again. Some of us, we rush things and then we wonder why we keep, like the circle keeps, like we keep going in a circle. We've been wait, you've been waiting on God to do something for a while and you rush and then you have to wait even longer. I, I've learned that sometimes when we rush ahead of God, uh, He's going to teach us the lesson one way or the other and we'll just kind of see it like back, back around the next year. Anybody else experience that besides me? Yeah. Yeah, you, 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 you rush ahead of God and you think, oh, I've got this. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to go ahead and take care of this. And then when you do, you see the same problem, like it comes around the neck. Or you're still waiting. You find yourself still waiting. It's because, man, we cannot, we cannot hurry. Hurry will hurt us every single time. We have to be patient. We have to wait on God. God's got a timing. God has a, a way of working in our lives. And so... The world is a difficult place. Man, maybe you're facing some stuff. Maybe your, your family's not what it needs to be. Maybe, maybe your job isn't what it needs to be. Maybe you're facing some decisions. Can I just encourage you? Just be patient. Maybe there's some things you've been praying about and asking God for, and you've been begging God to do something. Can I encourage you? Just wait on the Lord. Now, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying all that. Please don't hear me saying that we sit back and we do nothing. But I, I think the question is this, is where's our, where's our trust? Well, where, where's our trust really? Is it really in Jesus, or do we think we've got to control everything? Do we, do we think we've got to come up with a solution to all of the problems? Man, you, you, maybe you're stressed out, and you're not getting any sleep, and you're, you're worried to death about all the stuff that's going on in your life. Man, put that down and leave it with Jesus. Again, it's, it's not that, that we're just sort of sitting back. It's that we, it's, patience is this inner attitude of saying, man, God's, God's got this under control, and I'm, I'm not going to rush this. And may, maybe, maybe you're in a place where you don't want to be, and maybe you just need to hang out there for a minute longer and see what God does. Maybe you're in a situation you don't want to be in, and you have the power to sort of make the move. But maybe the Holy Spirit's just saying, man, just, just pause. Just stay right where you are for just a moment longer. Why, why all this talk about patient? Well, here's the thing. It's easier to be patient if you know there's something good coming. It's easier to wait if you know there's something good coming. Right? So... I, that probably be a bad analogy, but I go to a steakhouse and they could tell me it's a 30 minute wait and I'll be like, okay, because I know I'm getting a good meal. But if I'm going to McDonald's, I don't want to sit in the drive-thru for 30 minutes. 
That makes sense, right? It's easier to be patient when you know something good is coming. And so we have to be patient. James says this, why should we be patient? Because Jesus is coming soon. Why should we be patient? Because the Lord is coming soon. The Christian can be patient because we know something that the world does not know. We can endure suffering because we have hope that the world does not have. And when I say hope, I do not mean wish. I mean hope grounded in confidence in God and in His Word. Hope in what? Well, here's our hope. Here's the blessed hope. And we talk some about that. It's one of our cardinal doctrines of the Assemblies of God is the blessed hope. Here's the blessed hope that Jesus was raised from the dead. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Jesus was raised from the dead and that we will be raised too. That because Jesus was raised, that one day you and I will be raised and we will be glorified and we will have an incorruptible body and that the sin and sickness and brokenness and all that is messed up about the world will be undone. This is not pie in the sky, wishful thinking. This is reality. One day all the sorrow, all the injustice, all the things that we're going through will end. Three times in this passage, we're reminded of the return of Christ. He says in verse 7, be patient until the coming of the Lord. In verse 8, be patient and take courage. The coming of the Lord is at hand. In verse 9, he says the judge is standing at the door. What does he mean by all this? That Jesus is going to come back. That we will be, because he was resurrected, we will be resurrected. We will be with him and Jesus will judge and set everything right. So all this stuff that you think is unfair and life just doesn't treat you well and it's just Jesus will one day set all of that right. All the brokenness, all the tears, all the pain, all the sickness, all the loss, all all of that will be made right one day and this is our hope. James is reminding them that there's coming a day when the Lord will return. He will judge things. He will set things right. In Revelation chapter 21, Verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4, And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And God is going to one day make all things new. And this is our hope as Christians. This is our hope as believers. Not only that he resurrected, but that because he resurrected, one day we will resurrect. One day we will be like him. One day we will be made new. One day all creation will be made new. The world will be restored and you will be restored fully and completely to right relationship with God, to right relationship with others, to right relationship with yourself. You will be restored. That God is going to bring it about. But until that day, man, we wait patiently. Until that day, we endure, knowing that the God who started this work is going to finish it. Knowing that the God who began the work is going to finish it. And we, we are reminded of this. Listen, I, I believe, uh, I almost called this The End is Near, right? I almost titled this message The End is Near. And here's why. Because the end is near, but not in the way that you think, right? Not in the holding a sign. Hey, the end is near, not the picket sign. 
But the, the, the moment in which God makes everything new is already beginning to break into the present. So, so follow me for just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us this, or excuse me, I think I have that wrong, but Corinthians tells us this, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? He's a new creature. What is God going to do at the end? Make all things? You are a preview of what is to come. Man, your, your life is a preview of what is to come. When God breaks in and heals a body, what, what is he doing? It is a preview of a day in which we will need no more healing. When, when we gather around the table and we share communion, what are we doing? It is a preview of a day when we will sit around a table and share in communion with God. It is a preview of what is to come. And we can have hope because the end is near. That God is close and he is with us and he wants to work in our lives. But until the day when all of that is restored fully and completely, man, we wait with patient endurance. And we don't neglect waiting. And so I just want to encourage you this morning. Life can be difficult. Life can be unjust. But God has called you to be patient. Why? Because he's coming again. And because he's going to make all things new. Remember this. Don't neglect the stretching. Don't neglect the stretching. Then maybe God's trying to stretch you. Maybe you're in a moment where God's trying to stretch you. Wait in that moment. Don't neglect the stretching because hurry will get you hurt. That maybe there's something that God wants to do in you right where he has you right now. And maybe you're like, I don't like this situation. I'm mad. I, like, great. Be mad. God can take it. Go take it to him. I, if I can just be completely honest, I had a, a moment a few weeks ago where I was like, okay, God, like, I, what are you doing? I'm pretty ticked off at you right now. I mean, I had, this, is, this is the conversation I had with him. And I said, you know, I went and told somebody, I said, I, I'm going to be honest with you, at this moment, here's what I got. God's good, God loves me, and he might have a good plan. That's the way I feel. But all I've got is God's good, and I know God loves me, and I'm holding on to that, and we'll get through the rest. And maybe you're at that point where you can say, man, I'm, I'm angry, and I'm in this situation, and I don't understand why I'm going through it, and what is God doing? If all you have to hold on to is God's good and God loves me, cling to that and get through it. But be obedient to where he has you. Be patient. Wait for it. Wait for it. Because in our hurry, we often hurt ourselves. And we often miss what God wants to do. Thank you.